Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here with today's guest, General Michael Gruen. We're so excited to have General Gruen with us today. He recently served as the commander of the DOD Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, which we'll definitely dig into, um, but had a really incredible career in the Marine Corps, serving as uh, Deputy Chief of Staff of Computer Network Operations at the National Security Agency and led intelligence for the entire Marine Corps. So thank you, Mike, so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thank, thank you both for, uh, for, for doing this and uh, all the services that you guys provide, like outside of this environment, too. I mean, you, both of you are, are just so impressive with the Silicon Valley Defense Group, with Benz, with uh, you know, what you do at Beacon, Lauren, and, uh, you, you know, Hondo, legendary uh, effectiveness, you know, in every place that you've been, you know, SOCOM, you know, with the, you know, working with the Navy. It's, it's really great to be able to talk with you guys today. Well, it's awesome to have you here, Mike. And and again, it's all all about a team sport here. But but my guess is when you decided to go into Marine Corps, you didn't picture yourself running all the AI for the DoD as a three star. What what got you? What was your story? What got you in the Marines? And what uh what led you kind of down the intelligence path and and got you to where we are here today? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good question. And uh, I think the the succinct answer is a series of happy accidents. Um, you, you know, like a like a lot of people, uh, you know, I I was going to join the Marine Corps for three years, do my Marine Corps time, do my service, and then move on to uh, you know to the rest of my life. And uh, of course, you, you know, you you find yourself in uniform in the service and just such enormous, compelling opportunities. You know, the people you work with, uh, the institution that you're a part of. And, and so, like, it all just becomes a really powerful, attractive force. And, uh, um, you know, and then as your career starts to, starts to flow, you know, you, you reach all these different gates and, and, you know, you have the opportunity to live overseas, to go to grad school, to, you know, to do systems design and, and engineering uh, work at a combatant command, you know, and, and kind of like really see how theater and global operations work. Uh, obviously, operational assignments, uh, you know, in, in lots of lots of places, uh, you get the opportunity to command. Like every one of these is just sort of like, hey, what would you like to do next? Would you like to stick around to do this? Oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'd love to do that, right? And so um, I don't think I could have mapped a more fulfilling career, like if I tried to like lay that all out. But it just it just was like one great opportunity after another. And so I, I uh, you know, in, uh, obviously, even in that environment, when you ever, you know, if you, if you have a bad day or something like that, no matter, no matter, you know, even if I didn't like what I was doing at the moment, I loved like who I was, right? And so like, I was proud of myself and I was proud of the people that I worked with. And so, um, you know, it was easy to stick around, you know. That's awesome. So I mentioned you most recently led the DOD Joint Artificial Intelligence effort, which is a fairly new effort, and as Hondo mentioned, oversaw AI for the whole department, which is no easy task. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience, and particularly the importance of bringing in non-traditional defense players to collaborate with? Yeah, so so that's a that's a great question, and just sort of a great. 
you know, there's a lot of conversation today and there has been for years about kind of like, does the Department of Defense, like how does it acquire? What is its relationships with its consumers, its sponsors, its uh, vendors? And so like that's a really, it's, it's a really important thing. And so like when, when I look at this question though, it really, I see it through the lens of two um, transformations, right? One is digital transformation. And that is, you know, this is a wave that's carrying everything, right? It, all the industries around us. Um, and the department still isn't quite there yet, right? And so, and so digital transformation is really important. The transformational part is, is what really you have to pay attention to. Um, tech adoption is not digital transformation. Tech adoption is taking the latest tech and applying it to the things that you already do. Digital transformation is rethinking your problems, your processes, and the way you do business so that you can do things in entirely different ways. And obviously, you can do a mix. Of, you know, if you have something that works really well, great, keep doing that. But, but, it, but it, it gives you the opportunity to, like, rethink your baseline. And so, like, that is really important. And, and that is what creates competitiveness. And this is where, you know, this is a really important word for all of us, you know, these days and every day. But it really, it, it, it comes into sharp focus when you think about, okay, in a transformed environment, how, how competitive are you? Like, are you paying attention to your competitiveness? And, you know, when, before you even talk about defense, you think about, like, all of the American industries that have, that have gone through this digital transformation for the purpose of becoming competitive or gaining competitive advantage, whatever industry you're talking about. Uh, you know, retail, manufacturing, farming, I mean, like every industry out there, investing, you name it, um, all seeking competitive advantage. And that's how we need to think as a Department of Defense. Like our soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, guardians, they deserve a competitive advantage on the battlefield. They, we have to provide that to them, right? And so if you're not compelled by that, then I don't think you're paying quite enough attention, right? And so when there's, when there's, when there's questions about, well, this technology, it's hard, and I heard, you know, somebody told me that this thing didn't work or whatever, like, no, 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 that's the wrong lens. The right lens is, are we creating the right competitive advantages for our young men and women that, uh, you know, that are in dirty and dangerous places? That's really important to me. Yeah, so, so, you know, one of your jobs was being the head of intelligence for the joint staff, you know, arguably looking at it every day. What's your sense of the competitive landscape at the strategic level? You know, how is that shifting? And then how does that put into focus this idea that that landscape is changing and, and our competitiveness is not a given? We're going to have to keep fighting for it. Yeah, so, like, that's a great question, right? Because the... um are we actually competing, right? Right? Like, you know, for so long, I think we've been very comfortable that, you know, we set the standard. We didn't have to compete. We set the standard and everybody else would try to kind of come into formation and compete with us. And, and that's, not, that's clearly not the case anymore. And so, like, we see so much. We can learn so much, you know, through, you know, through the lens of Ukraine, for example. You know, lens of Ukraine, like, I'm not sure that the Russians wish they had a lot more tanks right now, right? So, like, what's the role of the tank in the in future? Tanks are great, you know. If, if you need to get out of the fire, that's a great place to be, behind a tank, right? But, but that's, um, you know, if, if uh, dismounted infantrymen with shoulder-fired, you know, precision-guided munitions 
can devastate an armored formation, then you just kind of have to ask yourself, well, wait a second, what's the, what's the competitive opportunity here, right? And, and maybe it's not get rid of all your tanks, but it's like, okay, what's the right balance of small UASs, of um, cyber tools, of um, um, you know, shoulder launch munitions? All of these things, you know, if you rethink your processes, your warfighting processes, you can start to see how that works. So, so that's like one. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a laboratory where we're learning things like small kills big. So don't be big, right? Uh, you know, lethality comes from precision, right? So, so be precise. Be lethal. Be situationally aware. Like all of those things kind of come together. Um, that's what you can kind of learn if you look at Ukraine. If you look at China, then, of course, you know, our primary competitor, um, you know, articulated in strategy, um, there's a, I, I, think, I think of our competition through the lens of organization and innovation. So, so the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Liberation Army, are extraordinarily organized, right? I mean, that, that's the nature of the authoritarian regime. It's how they run their military. It's how they run their economy, their society organization is a really powerful tool you can be really competitive if you are highly organized and there's nobody that surveils their citizens and their companies and all of their other aspects better than the chinese communist party i mean they do this fantastic uh i'm sure everybody's seen the you know the videos of like you know the guy crossing the street you know and he, he might be jaywalking and you know he's immediately uh, identified you know through six different parameters you know here's his you know, here's his name, here's his employment, here's what neighborhood he lives in, here's what groups he's associated with, here's his health status, here's the last time he had a COVID shot. Like, like all of that organizational power to surveilling citizens and especially, you know, the Uyghurs out west. But, but um, on the other hand, you have innovation. And I think, I think we like to think of ourselves as innovative, and I think that's actually true. I mean, just the, the power the intellectual power of our universities, of our small companies. I mean, there's a dynamism and it's real, right? Like, like you can see it and you can feel it. Um, so like that really gives me great hope because I just, you know, over, over in my experiences in the, in the Jake, interacting with all of those small companies, interacting with um, some of the, just the greatest universities in the world, in the United States, you really feel the enthusiasm, the power. So the question really is, um, what's more powerful, organization or innovation? And, and to, to, you know, to answer that question quickly, I would say, um, you know, if you're innovative and you're just organized enough that you can bring your, your uh, innovation to bear where it matters, you probably are going to be nimbler and faster and more adaptable than a highly organized uh, you know, organization that has to maybe shift its focus or do things in different ways. I think, I think you can start to create dilemmas and, uh, and take advantage of our innovative capabilities, but it's not a given, right? I mean, this is something that we have to compete for. I really like your comparison to industry where you're saying essentially industry has to maintain their competitive edge to survive, so they're evolving, they're innovating and adapting. And to your point about the U.S., we used to set the standard, and I, I think you'd agree that the U.S. is still setting the standard. It's just not the U.S. government. It's the private, private sector and industry, perhaps, who are developing the best technologies or most forward-leaning when it comes to innovation, as you say. And so from, from your position or where you sat at the department, 
are the authorities there to collaborate or is this uh, a cultural issue? What's your take on some of the challenges? Yeah, that's, that's another great question because I, 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 I almost hate to say this, but I think it's almost a hundred percent cultural, right? And I, cause it is, we have great universities, we have great corporations, we have great small startups, we have great innovation, smart people who want to support defense. I mean, this is the other, uh, you know, the other thing like the, this is not, a, you know, this is not a mercantile relationship that they're looking for. They're looking for, they're, obviously, they're looking for, to make money, but they want to make us better. They want to make us stronger. They want to make us more competitive. And so, like, how do you bring those kind of partners, you know, into the question? It, it, there's a lot of conversations about um, acquisition and, uh, you know, acquisition authorities and the PPBS process and all the rest. Uh, and those are legitimate conversations. But honestly... Um, I mean, Hondo, you're a living example of this, right? Like, you know, in, in like in SOCOM and other places, you know, you, you can succeed. You can be innovative. You, you can make a difference. And the rule sets are the same, right? Like a lot of people say, well, SOCOM, um, they have uh, service-like authorities so they can do these things. Well, services have service-like authorities, right? I mean, <laughs> that's what they have. And, and so, like, how do we, how do we spark a fire, to, to like get people to, to innovate. And that's a, that's a, um, you know, that's not as easy as you might think because you have to, uh, you, you know, you have to work your way through the PPBES system. You have to recognize that there are, there are competing priorities. I mean, you know, the Navy again, as, as you know, Hondo, like the Navy's struggle, I mean, has some really large fiscal challenges, right? That, and so it's not, it's not enough to just say, well, you should just, go invest in these, uh, you know, uh, innovative things because you still have to, you need a Navy afloat. You need a Navy under the sea. You need airplanes to fly. And so like, like none of that goes away when you're trying to innovate, but there's a real important cultural thing here with, um, I, I think we have, a, we have a guide, right? Um, famous technologist, Abraham Lincoln, who said in 1862, um, as our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. Like, okay, a completely different context. But here you had, in, in 1862, a nation that was enthralled with all these political machinations and uh, uh, legal machinations and foreign entanglements. I mean, you know, the nation was enthralled by all these things. I would submit that we, in the Department of Defense, and maybe more broadly, are enthralled by things, enthralled with our acquisition process, enthralled by the idea of um, maybe competition between vendors rather than collaboration, enthralled with the idea that, um, well, all these small companies that are all around us have all the answers and we should just like throw it all over to them. That's not true either, right? But like all of these enthrallments keep us, I think, from, you know, from shifting that dynamic. And there's a core of, I have to say this, of, of, of you know, what it means to be a professional. This is what really resonates with me. What is a profession, right? What is a professional? It's a group of people that profess something. And I think the things that we profess have gotten skewed, right? Like we profess things that were relevant in the industrial age. And we've, we haven't crossed the bridge to how do we profess a different way? Like what do our communities of professionals, great civilian and military folks inside the Pentagon and outside the Pentagon working hard to make us competitive, but they're, 
they're, they may be doing it in ways that aren't really productive, right? And that's, that's, that's something that we have to, you know, there's voices are missing that we have to bring into this conversation. One thing, um, you know, you, you brought up SOCOM, and, and it's an interesting example. Um, and one of the things I think is interesting about it is, one, they tried to go down to digital. They were forced to, by the war, go down a digital transformation path pretty early in the, in the war to be successful because, quite frankly, that was one of the enablers. And then they viewed themselves as much an importer of ideas and technology than an exporter. Right, and they they get really good at um, importing an idea from wherever it came from, and and that might be an interesting uh, analogy. But the the final piece I would say is it was really outcome focused, and and one of the challenges in big bureaucracies they confuse outcomes with activities, and they confuse well yeah we're really busy yeah, okay but are you generating an, an outcome that matters? So from your view of AI, what is what is you know, in, in a relatively near term, what is the outcome, assuming we get the digital transformation, assuming we start working through some of the culture and bringing all the right voices, what's the outcome you think AI does practically for either on the battlefield or for the nation? You know, because it can be this, this giant term that can sometimes mean lots of different things to lots of different people. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and you know, you can, you can see sort of individual, like professionals, you know, military professionals like wrestling with this. Like, um, you know, hey, I've heard, you know, I've heard that failed or I've heard that didn't work. And so, like, now I'm, 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 I'm backing away because, like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the way we are. So it's really important that we have the right dialogues here, right? And, and that starts with, I, I think it has to start with the... Um, the ethical baseline, right? Like how we as a moral society, we as a moral military force, we adherence to the laws of armed conflict, we have to ensure that our technology continues uh, to, to comply with those things that we profess as a professional military. Like that's, like that is un, you know, you, you can't challenge that. That has to be something that you put in place first. So, so like if you, if you, if you build, so the department spent a lot of, a lot of good, I think, healthy time thinking through that. And if you think, you know, extending that beyond just AI to like human machine teaming at large, like how, how are we going to do human machine teaming? And what does a, what does a machine teammate look like and what rules does it live by and how do we interact with it? You know, all, all the rest, right? So we could talk about that all day, but, but, but like, how do you build, um, how do you build an environment then that you can um, start to use these tools effectively? Like in the human machine teaming space, for example, everybody has a picture in their head of, uh, you know, a little robot dog or something that will go look around the corner for you. Um, here's the thing, human, the machines that we team with, there will be thousands of them and only very few of them will actually have a physical form. They're going to be information teammates, right? Because this is where humans lag, right? And so um, I've heard it characterized, you know, artificial intelligence and what it does for you. Uh, I've heard it characterized as eyeglasses for the mind, right? Where, where no kidding in the vast enterprise of data that you're surrounded by that you purposefully collect and curate you can't see clearly what that what's in that data unless you have these kind of glasses, right? And so what that means, you know, practically on the battlefield, for example, um, so if you have, uh, uh, you know, overhead imagery, for example, satellite imagery, um, being able to detect objects, 
being able to identify objects, being able to do change detection, being able to now pattern activity. Hey, you know, the last time those airplanes left that airfield, this is what happened. Do you see any collaborating information that might tell you that? And being able to have that kind of at your fingertips, right? So you have these agents um, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, artificial agents that are, that, that are your teammates in helping you understand your, the, the digital environment around you. So it, 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 that, that, that comes from a culture of measurement, a culture, a culture of collecting data, a culture of using data to drive decisions or inform decisions. It doesn't take the humans out of the loop. It actually puts humans like up on a pedestal, right? Because humans are going to take advantage of all of these, you know, all of these different algorithms that are out there. A commander doesn't have to get on the radio and ask about the logistics posture of Bravo Company, right? Because that data is already exists and there's an icon on his display that says, you know, Bravo Company is green. Like that kind of the, 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 uh, the efficiency and the tempo that you can achieve and the precision that you can achieve by just having sort of machines to help you with the mounds of data is really critical. And then you can start to extend from there, right? So then you can start talking about, um, uh, you know, dwarm, drone swarms that, um, that now can accomplish missions, for example. You can talk about, um, you know, uh, loyal wingmen, you know, so, so, you know, one airplane can actually, you know, have, you know, 10 different components that can now, you know, have, have much greater range of effects. Like all of, all of these things start from like understanding your environment um, and then being able to act quickly. I, 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 I'll make a reference to the OODA loop, right? So here's the thing in OODA, in OODA so we're always talking about accelerating the OODA loop. If you're always observing, and you're always oriented, your OODA loop gets really, really short, right? Because you're ready to decide and act like right now, right? Indicator, bam, indicator, bam, threat, response. Uh, so that's what AI will do for us, right? And it, it, it's not ready for prime time today, but we have, to get, we have to start doing the same things that our industry has done to achieve digital competitiveness, right? Is you get that competitive advantage by starting to collect meaningful data, by starting to, to, to build platforms and, and infrastructures that allow that data to be shared. Uh, you, you know, in, in, a, in our world, an Air Force sensor, data from an Air Force sensor should flow automatically to an, uh, you know, an Army ATACMS battalion, for example, right? Like, like, that, like that should be enabled in a digital environment so that you can fight, fight with precision and tempo that just like outclass anything that we can do today. So, Mike, some of our listeners are companies who are trying to navigate how to provide these types of solutions to the Department of Defense. And I know we talked about the cultural issues on the DOD side, but I think industry can make some improvements. And I've heard you give advice that I think would be really helpful for our listeners to hear. And I'm probably going to butcher it, but I really want to prompt you to get into this. So there were two parts. One was don't just talk about your technology, really talk about the solution. And so the problem it solves. And then to something like object detection. If it's an ornament on a Christmas tree, how do you provide the full solution? And to me, that it means partnerships or thinking through on the industry side, how do we get together so that we're providing a stronger product? So could I have you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, and so, so I'll, if I go down the wrong, the wrong lane, then you know, please correct me. But here, here's, here's the thing. Um, and I've, I encountered this now, now that I'm kind of in the place that I am. Um, but, but I did a bit before in, in, in the Jake, and that is like I, I, I talk to small companies almost every single day, and they like we have this brilliant thing. This is this this 
awesome algorithm. The Department of Defense has to have this. Why, why won't they buy this algorithm, right? And at the same time, in a different place, you have functional expertise. You know, the artillery community, the Navy, you know, the surface ship community. And they're saying, gee, I have all of these functional problems. And I know those companies are like right outside the gate. Why can't we, you know, why can't I get access to those things? And so, so here you have, you know, uh, functional communities desperate for solutions who actually know the warfighting process and the values that, you know, go into those value chains, right? This is not, uh, this is not science. It's art. Like, uh, you know, the artillery, you know, if you know artillery men, uh, and now artillery, artillery women, like, holy cow. These people know process because life and death, right? Depends on it. And so like, like those kind of uh, communities, functional communities that could just explode their relevance, their precision, their tempo through the integration of AI, they don't have a collaborative dialogue with the software providers who think that they have something really cool. And maybe it is cool. It's just not relevant to the problems that our functional communities have, right? So like gaining functional relevance is really important. And this is why um, in our requirements, in the things that we produce, in, in our pitches as we're you know, trying, to, trying to pitch technology, it's really important that we, that we articulate the end state, right? Tech adoption is not an end in itself. Optimization of process, accelerating tempo, in all of the other beneficial aspects that technology can bring to our warfighting, it has to be done in a collaborative environment with warfighters and technologists. And, and today, like the, the, our environment just doesn't support that, right? Because you have winners and losers for contracts. You have large tenders that major companies can, you know, they have the BD teams and they can do all the work to do that. Small companies just don't have that. So they don't have enough you know, capacity to, or endurance to, to fight their way through a process. Um, so like we have to, we have to create an environment where those small companies actually have the opportunity to collaborate with their functional peers so that we can actually get good tech. Yeah. So, um, I, I really love this idea of we have to be digitally you know, our digital competitiveness because you might argue we focus for many decades on our industrial competitiveness. Uh, but at some point, if we don't get the, the national security enterprise up to some threshold level, all these great tools and uh, opportunities, we, we can't, can't capture them. Um, but let's talk a little on talent. Um, and, you know, you've been in the Marine Corps for a long time. Uh, and, you know, you've seen, I, I always tell folks that are worried about the future of our country, go see some young women and men serving and and how are they how are they coming into the force you know, as more digital natives now whether it's in cyber or using these new tools do you see the hunger from them to, to really want to get after this and and is there a way we could better employ their uh you know talents and service to, to help us in this transformation yeah so so great question and you know that you know, I think everybody sees, you know, what you've seen, what you've seen, Lauren, what I've seen, you know, that is just, just inspiring young men and women who, you know, they're capable, they're smart, they're focused, right? They want to do, they want to do the right things here. And so, so like, that's, that's not a problem per se. Um, like everything else though, and this gets back to the kind of the cultural artifacts, you know, it always comes to the frozen middle, right? Like, you know, every service chief, 
um, uh, you know, especially like General Brown, uh, you, you know, Admiral Gilday. I mean, like like uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. I mean, like like the service chiefs are all pounding the table. Like, I want more of this, and I want it faster. And the youngsters that are coming in, you know, in the you know in the junior ranks, they're they're pounding the table, saying, "I want more of this, and I want it faster." So, like, how do we unfreeze the frozen middle, right? And and the the answer is not, and this is this is something I, I you know I thought a lot about. Like the answer is not to turn all of your artillerymen into di- di- data scientists, right? Like like it's so so like we have to like hold on a second. We actually need the functional expertise to be functional experts. We need to help them rethink their processes through the lens of digital transformation, but 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 it's we don't want to just pull them all out and turn them into uh, you know coders. Um, because we have coders, we have access to lots of them, right? We just need to, you know, create the environment where we can actually bring them in more effectively in that collaborative environment. So, so it's like I, I, I like the, the army, for example, is doing fantastic things with digital training. I mean, it's amazing what they've what they've been, they've been able to do in a short time, and I think that's really good. But we just have to watch like the scale of that, right? When you start when you start taking away all your functional expertise. To, to focus on just technical artifacts, then, then you start to lose the warfighting uh, uh, expertise underneath. That really is, a, you know, the, the, the glue that holds it all together. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one thing that, that may work a little bit of the old Stammer Crystal team of teams is, is getting these diverse teams, whether it's from industry, small startups, big companies, young, young folks in service, and, and a couple of commanders kind of oriented, go solve this problem don't go reorganize to a better organization go you know kind of task force 59 oriented do you, do you see that as as a way to you know start breaking down problems and just have folks is you know working on them or again do we have to watch the chaos theory of lots of new little silos that we can't integrate I I, th- I think if you purposefully did it and you so you created an environment where all those little silos had a place to point their outputs for example what, what what's killing us today? What's making us non-competitive today, I mean, unambiguously, what makes us non-competitive today is our tribalism, right? And so that it's, an, it's a natural human thing, right? So it's not like, you know, the Pentagon's full of evil people or anything like that. But, but, but tribalism, our budget, budgetary processes facilitate and are enabled by tribalism. Our contract awarding is enabled by tribalism. Everything is, it goes back to this tribal culture um, somebody was really smart in the 1960s. They knew there was going to be a space force. So they designed the Pentagon with five sides. And that way, each there's five corners. And so each service has a corner that they can back into and defend their budget, right? So, like, that was brilliant. They, you know, how did they know in 1960 that that was going to happen? But here we are in an environment where, uh, you know, the, the, the Pentagon processes that evolved from, like, domain-specific hardware procurement. and And now... We are in a domain integrated software capabilities that are evolutionary and, and always that, you know, they're, they're useless until you can scale them. Well, in a tribal environment where one service will refuse to share its data with another or one, one service will, will not work on somebody else's platform or share a training environment or, or invest in a, you know, in a, uh, a set of, you know, quantum computing, uh, you know, solutions, whatever it is, like when you, when, when you, when everybody's backed in their corner and they're forced into this through our culture, right? The, the PPBS culture, um, then you don't, 
you don't start to like really start to achieve the integrative effects that are necessary. And, you know, like our, our acquisition processes focused on hardware systems. What we need is integrated software environments and software tools that are perpetually changing and data that's perpetually uh, uh, harvested and then, you know, and, then, and then used for function. We know how to do this. Our industry partners know how to do this. We just haven't been able to cross the cultural bridge to say, yes, we're going to fight as a team. Uh, jointness is a compromise that's not, it's, it's, great, it's a great compromise, but it's not sufficient for what we are trying to do or what we will need to do to become competitive. So we've talked about your amazing career in service, and you've been out now for almost three months or just about three months, a very short period of time. Have you learned anything in the private sector? Any surprises? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm just as busy, but I'm much happier, right? <laughs> I don't have to worry about my parking spot at the Pentagon. But, but, but uh, uh, I, to be fair, I... I I loved working at the Pentagon just because I love the people that are there, right? Like, like th- throughout, um, the thing that has motivated me throughout is just, especially like working with young, you know, Intel analysts, you know, at one of the Intel agencies, for example, or working with young Marines, you know, to solve a problem. I mean, just, that just like, just fires you up, right? And if, you know, if, if, you, if you're not on fire, you know, when you have those kind of interactions, then you're, then you're asleep, right? Then you really need to kind of pay closer attention. So, so the, on, the, on the private sector side, like one of the things that I've, that I've discovered, it, it, and this is fantastic, right? Like is you, you kind of, you know, you're conditioned inside the department that, you know, well, you know, outside the walls of the Pentagon, there's these evil, you know, organizations. They're called companies. And, uh, you know, some of them are big and some of them are small. They all want to take your money and feed you proprietary, you know, junk uh, so that they can charge you again. Like, like, and I found the exact opposite to be true, right? Like, I've found patriots who are, are just as deeply concerned about our national security and our national competitiveness as anybody wearing a uniform. And they want to help and they want to do it. And they're earnest in, in, you know, they're earnest in their, in their eagerness to like, okay, how can I get in there? I have some really smart people that I work with. I really want them to work on your problems. And we haven't created the venues for them to do that. It's enormous. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't talk to like a, a small, you know, software startup company and not walk away excited. Like, holy cow these guys are really good and they, they want to help. Um, I don't know. How, we have to figure out how to do that. You know, again, it's a cultural thing, but how do we empower them? And the current process isn't adequate to do that. Yeah, one of the things, uh, and I, I see the same thing. I mean, there are so many folks that want to help. And in fact, how hard they fight to want to help in spite of us in, in the department, not always leveraging them is, is actually laudable in their persistence. Um, but one of the things I also see is a lot of really um, talented leaders and, and uh, you know, teammates on those teams, but they haven't had the experience the military teaches you in terms of how to attack professional development and how to keep growing uh, as you work through your career. And, you know, some of that can be in mentorship. Some of that's, you know, trying different things. What, if you, as you look back on your super successful career so far, um, you know, and I think some of this, the military just does, um, but doesn't always talk about doing what are some, what are some of the things when you look back that really helped shape you and, and grow you that would be useful for 
whether it's folks coming up through the government service or founders or or folks in startups to be thinking about as they want to grow and achieve their goals. Yeah. So, so great question. And, and kind of like the, the, I mean, the first answer I would tell you is, you, you know, the, the focusing on outcomes and like really understanding what you're building, right. And like how it is going to be used and what your outcomes are. Every, every business should be doing that anyway. Right. But so that's, that's a really important thing, right. It's like mission focused, mission derived capabilities, not tech derived capabilities. If you, if you, if you, if you get my meaning, right. Like no kidding. Why are we doing that technical thing? It's really cool, but why are we doing that? And what does that help us do? So that's really, that's, that's really important just from a, from a cultural shift. I, I would say this though, the most important thing is people, uh, you know, and, and, and you guys you won't be surprised to hear me say that. Um, mentorship from below is such a powerful force, right? Um, and and when, you, when you, as a leader, when you create teams of people and those, those teams, you know, when they're looking up at you and saying, hey, Colonel, what do we do now? Or, hey, Captain, what do we do now? If that doesn't just light your heart on fire, right? Like you will do anything for them, right? Like you will do anything to lead them to mission success. You will do anything. And like the best mentorship that I've ever gotten has been from, you know, young kids, right? Right. From, from, uh, you know, at, at all ranks, everybody's young to me now, but, 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 uh, but, but, but young people and, and those, you know, 360 degree mentorship seek it, right? Like this is not something that, you know, uh, gets thrust upon you seek it. Right. And then of course, um, I, I just had the, the fantastic fortune to, to work with some of the most just incredible legendary leaders, um, uh, you know, like General Mattis, for example, um, you know, I was his, I was his G2 in Iraq and, um, um, holy cow, that guy had vision, that guy had focus, that guy could, could lead a large organization to a, to large effect. I, I, I just remember like we would just in amazement, um, something would happen and, and we'd go, wait a minute three days ago, he said that was going to happen. How did he know? Right? Like, and it wasn't, you know, one, one off here and there, like almost every day we were like, how did he know that we were going to be in this position? Um, General Dunford, another, you know, I was, the, when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I was fortunate enough to be his J2. Oh my God. Um, the, you know, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but maybe the greatest human being I've ever met. Right. Right. Like, like no kidding, selfless, uh, brilliant, patient, uh, you know, all of the attributes that, that, that just, just like make you, you know, we would sneak in, like we were already working, you know, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. We would sneak in more because we would refuse to fail him. We would refuse to let him down. Right. Because we knew that he worked so hard. We knew that he, um, you know, that he was wrestling with these really difficult problems. When you can get, when you can live in an environment where, you know, your boss is so good that you're, you know, you're sneaking in on Sunday morning so that you can get a couple more hours of work in. Like, holy cow, that's the kind of commitment that those leadership, the, that those leaders do. And, you know, I could go down the list, you know, uh, um, uh, General Stewart, you know, from, uh, from DIA, uh, uh, you know, General Kelly, you know, the former National Security Advisor. I mean, like, like I just had a really great fortune to work with great leaders, but also work with great people young DIA analysts, young NGA analysts, young NSA analysts, like, like, holy cow, powerful. Yeah. And, but it's only powerful if you're curious and paying attention. I mean, the only thing I wouldn't add on to that is, uh, for folks is 
pay attention to what's going on around. Watch, watch what other folks are doing. Learn. You can learn so much just by being curious and then, you know, creating that willingness to learn. Not that, that, not that you have the, the rise. So Mike, we, uh, we didn't talk about vitamin I, we can't have this podcast without, without you mentioning vitamin I, give give me a little vitamin I. Yeah. Okay. So, so some vitamin I, so here, here's when I, when I think about like, like what, one of the things that impairs us, right? Like what, like, why don't we digitally transform? Why don't we take a page from industry? You know, uh, the Bezos letter, you know, that, that are, that directed everybody use the same APIs across little Amazon in 2001. Um, like, okay, we're 20 years past that, right? Like what, what is it that stops us from like, like being successful in integrating, you know, and transforming our technology? And I honestly think it's a vitamin I deficiency, right? I being imagination. We have not listened to President Lincoln's words about thinking anew, acting anew, disenthralling ourselves. Like if we did that, and you actually had a vision for what does a, like a software-driven enterprise that's connected across all the services and all the warfighting functions look like? Holy cow. You, you, if you can imagine it, then you can create a functional vision for that. Like, oh, okay, yeah. It, so it's going to look something like this. Create the functional vision. Create the processes that take advantage of data. Um, validate those process, processes. Virtualize those processes. I mean, we could build a virtualized defense environment that would be extraordinarily powerful and data-driven, right? And without bending any metal whatsoever, right? But we just have to imagine what that looks like. I do think that there's an opportunity in what's articulated in the National Defense Strategy as campaigning. If, if there was a campaign, if we needed one campaign today, it would be a campaign to be competitive with the People's Liberation Army. So let's have that campaign, right? Let's organize it. Let's, let's, put banners on the sides of the Pentagon, right? Let's, let's get some neon lights, right? Like that, it's that important to us as a nation. It's that important to us as a military. Let's get the imagination about how do we actually bring this about? Because there's nothing more important that's on our plate. Wow. Well, on that note, Mike, you had so many great ideas. You know, one thing that stood out to me was um, on the industry side, it's not just pitching your technologies. A sales pitch really turns off the department. And you're almost seeing some division today where leaders at the department are talking about frustrations towards venture capitalists or towards tech bros. Um, and division is exactly what our adversaries want. And I think we see it's on all sides, everyone likes to solve hard problems, um, wants to come together and, and work this. So it's understanding DOD's problems in a way so you know what your technology solves, and then continuing to chip away at the cultural issues at the department so that we can have this stronger collaboration. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate it. I, I, I enjoyed every opportunity to talk to you, too. So thanks for your leadership in this space. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.